This is a special report on the snow and the man who says he predicted it and in his own words. When I say snow, I mean the snow storm in Texas and how it is um, infecting climate, affecting climate and other things within Texas. And what it means for the beginning, middle, and foreseeable future of mask wearing in America thanks to COVID-19. Stick with me, the host of the Truth News, and stick with CNN, Anderson Cooper, for more Bill Gates saw the coronavirus pandemic coming, or a pandemic like it, and tried to warn the world. It's fair to say not enough people listen. Maybe they will about what he sees as the greatest threat facing all of us today. In a new book, he details why we've never seen a challenge like this, climate change. His book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, that's what we wanted to talk to him about. He says it won't be easy. In fact, it will take global cooperation on a scale we have never seen before. But in Gates' estimation, it is doable. We talk about it in a fascinating and wide-ranging interview. Let's begin. I want to start with what's going on in Texas. We're, you know, we're watching the authorities dealing with just how unprepared they were for this extreme weather event, and, and we're seeing the very real human consequences, the suffering going on because of it. What's your takeaway from what's happened? Well, specifically, uh, Texas was not ready for these cold temperatures, and you know they had a, a nuclear plant go down because the it affected the sensors. They've had natural gas plants. Uh, that have had freezing problems and a little bit the wind, but it's not inherent uh, that those things aren't, aren't weatherized. Uh, you know, wind is used in North Dakota, uh, natural gas plants run in Alaska, and so it's just, they. this is so unexpected in terms of extreme weather events. The general point that as we move to weather-dependent sources, wind and solar, that we have to be very careful about reliability, that we will need to build more transmission and have some sources that are constantly there. That's the general point actually is true, but this specific is in no way an illustration of that. Yeah, I mean, the, the Republican governor Abbott scapegoated initially frozen wind turbines, particularly and the Green New Deal in general, when in reality, I mean, is that is that to blame? In this specific case, no. You you could imagine 
you know, 20 years from now, when the renewal percentage gets very, very high, uh, that you could have reliability issues, uh, but that doesn't explain any of what's going on here. This is not because of renewable dependency. This is natural gas plants largely that weren't weatherized. Uh, they could have been. It costs money, uh, and the trade-off was made, and uh, it didn't didn't work out, and it's tragic that it's leading to uh, uh, people dying. You've talked about this a lot, about uh, wind and solar, which you are a big believer in. You think uh, as much as 80% of our future energy needs can be handled by wind and solar, at, at least in, in this country, but that 20% that uh, will need to be most likely nuclear unless there's some big innovation in energy storage. Can you explain what, why that is? Because, I mean, this seems to be an example where nuclear, although in this in Texas there were problems with it uh, freezing up or, or breaking down, uh, in general is more reliable and, and easier to send over long distance, or not more reliable, it's, it's easier to store and easier to send over long distances than wind and solar. Yeah, so there's uh, indoor energy generation that uh, is not weather dependent, and that's burning coal, burning natural gas, uh, nuclear. You've got to make sure all the sensors and the way you connect up to the grid uh, that you don't have any pipelines that can freeze or sensors that uh, get messed up. Uh, but it's easy to be completely weather independent uh, for those sources. Whereas anything that's outdoors, uh, like wind or solar, if you have a big cold front, both of those shut down. And the best wind in the United States is in the center of the country. And sadly, these kind of cold fronts, like Texas is experiencing right now, do come uh, into their own state for periods of time. And that means the potential wind generation is greatly reduced, and so then You've got to ramp up the nuclear or draw uh, from storage. Right now, these uh, natural gas peaker plants are in place to deal with that, but because they're carbon emitting, we don't want to have to depend on those for the you know, decarbonized grid uh, that uh, the U.S. is, is moving towards. I, I want to get more into to some of the climate uh, details in, in a second. I do want to just talk about a little bit about COVID. And in, in your book, in How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, you use COVID as a mechanism to kind of help people understand how serious climate change is, that by mid-century, it could be just as deadly as COVID, and by 2100, five times as deadly. What lessons do you think we can learn from COVID that would be applicable to dealing successfully with climate change? Well, the pandemic is a great example where we count on the government to have expertise and to prepare us even for unlikely events. You know, certainly because we have earthquakes, the government has building codes uh, to minimize the, the damage and the deaths. You know, they've got FEMA that can step in there. Uh, for the pandemic, despite uh, myself and others, as far back as 2015, highlighting this as a huge problem that we weren't at all ready for. Uh, the right steps were not taken, and then even as the pandemic came upon us, uh, some of that CDC expertise wasn't wasn't used. So we'll be uh, looking back at what we should have done differently, and 
I think this time because of the trillions in dollars of cost and you know huge human misery that doesn't even get into that economic figure uh, that we will make those investments and that uh, you know that that will be great climate is very similar except sadly with climate uh, once you get into the problem the coral reefs dying off uh, the Arctic ice being gone uh, you can't reverse those things just by inventing one thing with the pandemic thank goodness that pharmaceutical industry Pfizer on its own the others with some uh, US help uh, did come up with the vaccines that now we can see you know the end is in sight uh, even with the variants slowing things down with climate it won't just be one breakthrough like that uh, and if you let it start to happen the instability the the uh, die-off uh, levels uh, will be way beyond the problems that we've had here with the pandemic. The, the um, Where do you think we are in, in this pandemic? I, I, I interviewed President Biden uh, just the other day. He was saying he thinks by end of July, uh, there'll be enough vaccines available for anybody who wants one doesn't necessarily mean it'll be in people's arms by then, but they'll be a, a, they'll be out there, they'll be available, and by December of next year, you know, we'll be back to normal. Though I talked to Fauci uh, after that, who you know sort of said Defend, depends how you define normal. How where do you see it? Where, when when do you think normal, you know, yeah. a, a semblance of normal returns? And do you think that end of July figure for the vaccines is right? Yeah, so the, the supply side on the vaccines is a very positive picture because not only do we have Pfizer and Moderna upping their capacity, uh, we have also Johnson & Johnson and Novavax that have proven to be very effective are coming along and there will be U.S. factories. So that'll uh, join in meeting that U.S. demand. So having the supply side in great shape by July, I think that's very likely. The logistics that have been limiting, you know, that varies state by state, but I think the lessons of the states who did it well, you know, if we had to do it all over again, you know, the CDC should have had the clear website to organize things, but uh, it's too late uh, to, to start that over. So the, the logistics, you know, could push things out a month or two, um, you know, the variants may mean that even people like myself who are lucky enough to have been vaccinated, we may get uh, a booster dose that's adapted to those. And they'll, so there'll be some logistics around that. Uh, but the, the true limiting factor may be the demand. You know, how many people are open-minded as they see uh, that the, there's very, very little in the way of side effects and that you're protecting your fellow citizens. You know, I've seen some numbers on this uh, for various groups like the military or uh, people of color that have me worried that we won't get up to a herd immunity level and that we need to communicate and create that trust. You know, I was in Milwaukee doing this town hall with, with the president. I was looking at the figures in Milwaukee, uh, and this is just off the top of my head, but I think among uh, white residents in Milwaukee, about nine some point something percent had been vaccinated among black residents, I think it was around 3.3%, which is startling that, you know, that, that, that difference. Yeah, and it should be the opposite because we've seen uh, for a variety of factors that we don't totally understand uh, that 
uh, uh, blacks are more susceptible uh, to get infected and, and even to die. And so we should be going after the people of color and building up their trust and acceptance and ease of uh, accessing the vaccine in a very special way. So we here we've fallen short again, but um, you know I, I, I think some special actions need to be put into place in terms of speaking somebody you know who has the trust of those communities talking about why they took the vaccine and why it's uh, helpful to the entire community. A, a year from now, would you go sit, have dinner outside in a restaurant or inside in a restaurant in Seattle? Would you, would you still be wearing a mask? Would you shake hands with people a year from now? <laughs> uh, you know, I'll follow whatever uh, the, the conventions are. If you're not around someone who is unvaccinated and at high risk, you know, either because they're older or medical conditions getting the disease, uh, we will be able to back off on some of these practices. Uh, if you're out where it's strangers and one of them may be an old, older person who's not vaccinated, you should wear a mask and you should distance because there's still gonna be a risk that even when you're vaccinated that you can transmit to that other person. Do you think you would go back to shaking hands? I mean, ever, is, it, is that, or is that just one of those things that in the future, we're always going to be carrying masks around. We're not going to have the sort of... He's smiling, so he doesn't know. It's interesting, you know, flu is at a record low because of the things we've done to reduce coronavirus spread. And flu on an average year, you know, is still killing 60,000 people despite having a vaccine and some prior immunity. And so whether people now say, gosh... It wasn't that valuable to shake hands, you know, so let's give that up. You know, I'll follow the social convention. I, I won't, you know, be an, an outlier one <laughs> if the other on that. Uh, Everyone shaking you know, hands, I, you'll I, shake hands. Okay, I got it. <laughs> just to show my, you know, I always think about technological innovation before other things. You know, I'm hoping we can come up in the next decade with a vaccine that, uh, is universal to all coronaviruses, not just this one. And likewise, a, a vaccine that's universal to all flus, because there are negative effects even from the coronavirus colds that people get. And the flu, we know that particularly in pregnant women, and the, you know, I mentioned the 60,000 deaths. And so I hope the medical community gets super ambitious on diagnostics, drugs, and vaccines to particularly uh, get rid of a lot of respiratory disease uh, because it's got a, a yearly burden as well as the pandemic risk. It's happening more often. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Bill Gates interview with Anderson Cooper. The best part is often hidden in the journey along the way. I'm a new customer and I want your best new smartphone deal. Those We're back. Will have to be eliminated uh, to, or get to zero in net emissions by 2050. 
We are. Hold on. Just a second here. Farmers, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. Like how nice it is to switch and save. We are back. Lots to say on the subject on overcoming obstacles to progress. Let's focus on climate change, the, the climate disaster, which you say is, is looming, and, and the world scientists agree with you. It, it, it was fascinating. It was really, I mean, educational for me reading your book, and and because it sort of put it in a perspective that I hadn't really thought about, and it also was oddly hopeful, even though the problem itself seems to me overwhelming at times. Um, just big picture, what you are calling for is a massive change to everything in, I think what you described as the physical economy. Uh, you know, right now people are watching this at home with the plastic on their television, the, uh, the tape, the steel in their, that built their building, the concrete that, that's in their building, how that's manufactured has to change, how the food they're eating is grown, the fertilizer is used, because all of it is releasing carbon dioxide and, and other chemicals that contribute, that are greenhouse gases, and those all have to be eliminated uh, to, or get to zero in net emissions by 2050. Yeah, the more people learn about this problem, the more daunting it is, because the uh, there are a lot of sources of emissions. Uh, and the, the one that people are the least aware of are those industrial manufacturing uh, sources like plastic, paper, uh, steel, cement, and in a way, we've kind of ignored those. We've had these near-term goals for reductions. And so naturally, if that's your priority, you go for the areas of emissions that are the... And uh, those are the emissions from passenger cars where you switch to uh, electric cars and the emissions from electricity generation where you switch from coal and natural gas to uh, wind and solar. And so that's all these reductions people talk about are in those easier areas. Uh, things like planes, uh, where the, the energy density of the aviation fuel can't be matched by batteries, or uh, those manufacturing areas, those are more difficult. So, you know, we even need to increase the amount of basic research and development we do on materials uh, to find more unique approaches and then fund, you know, super innovative companies, even when they're very high risk and then help them scale up with, with market demand. So, you know, as I studied the problem, uh, I learned more about how important it is uh, to the entire world, but also about how much we have to change. And, you know, 30 years is not very long. Uh, so this, the commitment required to pull it off is going to uh, be very challenging, and we're going to need, you know, the advocates to never uh, uh, drop their almost, uh, you know, furious push uh, to get us to make keep this a priority. I mean, you you liken it to, uh, you know, preparations for a world war, except even it's even it seems like bigger than that because it's global cooperation. It's you know, massive innovations, scientific breakthroughs that some of which we, you know, are still in infant stages of even getting close to, to, to possibly being able to achieve. I mean, it's something that 
you say the world has never seen before the kind of massive cooperative cooperative effort that's needed. That's right. The world, you know, we're richer today than ever. Uh, we're more aware of the problems. We have more scientists on a, on a global basis. Uh, we have the example of uh, the solar wind uh, and the uh, electrified passenger cars that point to uh, if you do the right things, you can take a sector and over time get the, the green uh, product to be as attractive without even subsidies uh, as the uh, polluting version of that product. Uh, but, you know, we have to act in parallel across all, all these different areas. And, you know, if the damage was small, you know, getting up our beaches and forests and natural ecosystems and, you know, not being able to work outdoors uh, in the southern parts of the country, uh, if those, you know, weren't just awful things, then it wouldn't be worth the trouble to try and accelerate this invention and this transition. But because so much is at stake and you don't get to go back, uh, you know, and, and fix it once the problem is there very easily, you know, we, we, we need to get, you know, we need to get going on this. Um, but I am, I do think, I think it's very possible. I, you know, the innovations I've seen in computing, uh, you know, stunned people, uh, and uh, that's what we need here. Again, it, it's it's so overwhelming. So just to break it down, kind of piece by piece. If you look at a pie of what is causing all the greenhouse gases, we all think, as you said, uh, about electric vehicle, you know, about uh, you know, cars, gas guzzling cars, uh, and electric vehicles being uh, the the future solution for that, and this and and the the progress for it right now. But that is only a small slice. Uh, manufacturing, how big of the, how, what percentage of greenhouse gases are caused by each of these pods? So what we see here is that the two sectors people know the best, electricity and transportation, those are both big, 27% for electricity and 16% for transportation. The, the two that are the least uh, known, I'd say, are manufacturing, which is the biggest up there at 31%. And that's the concrete, and then steel... It, Everything exactly. involved in manufacturing. Yeah, plastic, paper, uh, although cement and steel are a big piece of that. Then agriculture is another one that I think the awareness um, is fairly low. That's, you know, cows are a significant part of that. Um, the way we make fertilizer is significant. Uh, deforestation, which is uh, outside the United States, uh, in places like Brazil and Indonesia. Uh, that's kind of a, a tragic element of that as well. And then, you know, he, the fifth is the uh, heating and cooling buildings where uh, we'll switch to use electricity, just like with passenger cars, and then we have to make all the electricity green while we substantially grow uh, that electric capacity because the energy has to come from somewhere. And so converting parts of manufacturing, parts of transportation, virtually all of heating and cooling to use electricity is part of the, the, the grand solution. So we talked a little bit about, about nuclear. You believe that ultimately, well, wind and solar can account for maybe as much as 80% of, of power needs in the United States. Nuclear is gonna to have to fill the gap. It's 
uh, there's a reliability uh, and a uh, transmission issue that makes it, uh, you know, important and, and attractive. You uh, have a company, TerraPower, that you've invested in, which is completely remaking and remade a prototype for a nuclear power plant, um, which, you, you know, I'd like to hear from because there is huge skepticism and fear out there, which is justifiable based on what we have seen, you know, in Fukushima and uh, Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. Um, how do you tell people, how do you convince people that this can actually, nuclear power is not only essential, but it can be done safely? Yeah, so nuclear, when it was first invented in the 50s, uh, people hadn't thought about the radioactive waste and the you know, incredible danger if that gets out uh, in containing it. And so they thought, wow, we'll make all our electricity this way. And one uh, person said it will be too cheap to meter. Well, what turned out was that uh, building these reactors, uh, as they added more and more features, uh, around safety, they got very expensive. And so, you know, the biggest problem with nuclear power today is the plants cost too much. They they can't uh, compete with other ways of making electricity. Uh, the safety concerns, uh, you're right, uh, particularly Chernobyl uh, was, you know, awful loss of life. And so you want to design that you can prove that that uh, type of thing's never going to happen. Now, of course, other forms of making power, you know, including, you know, coal mines collapsing and coal particulate ruining health and natural gas pipelines blowing up. There's actually more deaths from the hydrocarbon approaches than from nuclear by a large amount. But we shouldn't accept any deaths. We should have a from scratch design that uses the latest digital approaches uh, and looks at all the challenges, whether it's, you know, tornadoes, earthquakes, volcanoes. Uh, planes crashing into it and says that the just the basic design makes sure that you don't have any high pressure or ways that the radioactive material would leave that reactor. Uh, so this industry has to prove itself. This is true. What's so interesting to me about um, how people have responded to some of what you are proposing, because you're really talking about innovation, innovation being the key to, to this. You know, there has been this argument for a long time from a lot of folks who you know, doubt the science on this, who say, well, look, even if the science is accurate, you know, there's going to be just some sort of, you know, breakthrough in technology down the road that we can't even imagine. Like, who could have imagined the, you know, the personal computer, the iPhone, you know, 50 years ago, uh, but there's going to be a breakthrough of that. What's fascinating to me is you're actually looking eagerly and investing money in any potential breakthrough that's out there. So you, of all the people to talk to, you are actually the person looking for a breakthrough, and even you are saying, to get a breakthrough, we need to invest a ton of money right now. Yeah, I've lost more money on battery companies than uh, anyone else, I think. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, a few of them are working, but uh, you know, it, there's a lot of dead ends. And you, I think you said in some of these investments, like there's an 80% failure rate, 80% of the stuff you invest in, it doesn't turn out. Right. Yeah, 20% success rate when you're limiting yourself to things that have dramatic uh, climate benefits, that would be very impressive. I think we'll achieve it, but, uh, you know, that, uh, that 
that's that's very hard. Uh, you know, you've got to try things, and so we shouldn't stand by passively and just let climate overtake us. Funding R and D, uh, basic R and D, which is you know government like what government does in healthcare, uh, at a super generous level over thirty five billion a year. You know, that's the kind of thing that. Uh, you get companies uh, taking those ideas and uh, taking a risk, uh, creating jobs, and you know if they're successful, uh, those products are valuable around the entire world, allowing not just the U.S. to meet its uh, reduction goals, but you know helping even countries that can't afford to pay a huge green premium like India. So you think $35 billion a year is what the U.S. should be spending on R&D, R&D, research and development, in order to get green, you know, green technology, green uh, innovations. How much is the U.S. spending right now? Uh, even the most generous measurement would have it at about That's a 10 billion shake. a year. So, uh, what I'm Not of a head, so yes, he does think that, of that money. we should be spending... And you know, that, more than we are. That's actually fairly cheap in a sense uh, because compared to all the deployment costs, which can get you up into hundreds of billions or trillions, uh, that is the most leveraged, most impactful thing instead of subsidizing in kind of a brute force way that using the high green premium approach, it, research can get you uh, an easier path. And so I, you know, I view that as kind of the long lead time thing, particularly for the the tough areas. And so I, you know, my message uh, for quite a while now has been, of all the things that we need to fund, I I put that at the top of the list. Commercial break. There is one key part of understanding what Bill Gates is doing when talking about certain topics um, within the uh, atmosphere and the the world as a whole um all you have to do folks to be able to understand what he's uh talking about is pay attention to his head movements Pay attention to his body language. Pay attention to everything that a person says as well as his body language. And when another person is talking to him about a subject pay attention to that as well because that'll tell you if he agrees with a shake of the head or with a with a nod of the head or a shake of the head 
and there's more nods of the head in this interview so far than there are shakes of the head. We're back. He's also looking further ahead, though, toward a more sustainable future and farther afield at how to achieve it. One of the things that's interesting to me about having a child is, you know, all the cliches are true, one of which is it changes the way you think about time and the way you see, you know, the planet and, and, and your sense of involvement in things. You know, I, in reading a book, I was thinking, well, if my son lives to be 80 years old, uh, he will be alive at, you know, in 2000, you know, in 2100, which is the point at which a lot of, if we don't address these problems, people will really see the impact of these problems in a very, very dramatic way. What, so somebody who's just born today at 80 years, what will they see in the planet that, that right now we don't see or some people may not even believe will happen? Well, many of the natural ecosystems that we enjoy, things like coral reefs or uh, the Arctic and Antarctic ecosystems, those will have been destroyed the ability to work outdoors uh, anywhere near the equator will have gone away. And so the ability to do farming uh, in those areas, it'll completely fail. And the large number of people who live in those areas will start migrating north and you'll have great instability. You know, governments will fall, you'll have civil wars. You know, the current levels of migration that we see today uh, will be tiny compared to the climate migration that develops by the end of the century. And so, you know, oh, big parts of the planet will be unlivable. Uh, the nice beaches that we've seen will be, uh, will have gone underwater uh, during that time period. And all the kind of real estate development near those areas, uh, you know, you'll, you'll see storms that will come so far inland uh, that you'll just have to leave, abandon uh, those beaches and those areas. So it, it really gets quite dramatic. Uh, you know, if you're in the very north part of the United States, it's not quite as bad. The wildfires, the, uh, the hot days, uh, but, you know, for the, you know, say Texas or uh, the world as a whole, uh, it's an utterly different world. You said uh, in an interview um, I don't think the poorest 80 countries will be eating synthetic meat. I do think all rich countries should move to 100% synthetic beef and get used to the taste difference. And the claim is they're going to make it taste even better uh, o over time. I, I was reading there was a lot of uh, kind of blowback to that in, in some media saying that essentially, you know, you love cheeseburgers. You're saying that everybody in the developing world should switch to synthetic meat. What do you say to the criticism? Well, I hope we come up with ways that the traditional way of making beef, you know, growing a cow, uh, that we can reduce the emissions, different diet, uh, you know, enclosed infrastructure. There are uh, people who are working on that, and that, that is a great thing. That would be way more straightforward. You know, I certainly, uh, you know, think the, the economy, the ranching economy, you know, we want to keep that, that strong. And, you know, 30 years is a long time, and so... During that time, we should look at every possible form of innovation. You know, food does get cheaper over time. You know, I, I think it 
if different approaches can make things less expensive while maintaining the quality, we should be open-minded to that. Uh, but, you know, farming, when we're talking about biofuels, will actually be a huge contributor to what this green economy looks like in the future. Uh, how the livestock piece of that fits in, uh, you know, we should all you know, do the research. Uh, and if we can find a way to do it without uh, big shifts, so much the better. But, but synthetic meat is something you think um, is going to grow and grow in terms of, of people's uh, use of it. I mean, right now, there's yes. impossible uh, beyond, uh, beyond me. Yes, I mean, I'm not, you know, I have to own farmland and my investment, I'm, you know, holding on to that. I don't see that as, uh, 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 you know, a uh, some something that will be in, in less demand. But the livestock piece, uh, it's, you know, kind of stunning how many emissions are there and, uh, you know, some of the things like manure management um, can be done in, in a better way. Uh, uh, if, methane if, emissions. Right. I mean, we've, if methane emissions, if like, I think it's like four or six percent of uh, methane emissions, of all methane emissions, come from cows uh, farting and, and belching, how do you stop that other than not having cows? Well, you could have you know, the final growing part be in an enclosed environment where those aren't escaping out to the atmosphere. You could have people have proposed, That would not be fun you know, to work in that closed environment. <laughs> but you'd have no. uh, air circulation, okay. hopefully. Uh, the, you know, people have even talked about what they eat or changing the bacteria in their stomach. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't put it past science to uh, be able to drop those emissions uh, and still, you know, use the, the current production system. And it, you know, it's valuable to try and solve this problem a variety of ways. So what he's saying there is it's best in the long run to not be V to not be vegan for all those vegan people out there now because the crops will not grow in the future because the climate change will be changing so drastically in the future that there won't be any vegetables out there on earth and so it's best to just go with cows meat and everything that cows produce, pigs, and animals, um, I know, I know this will be hard for people with vegan, 
um, vegan thoughts, uh, saving the world, but based on what this interview is telling me and telling you, the people who are listening to this interview with me over the podcast is that food by the 2100 mark will not be available and I I have to say this is um food going into the tw- 22nd uh part of the world the 22nd Millennium, or however you call it. Not the 22nd centuries, what, I, what I'm saying. Or have been with uh, the Biden administration. What do you make of what they are calling for and, you know, what you are calling for? How, how, what is the difference between those? What's the gap there? You know, I I really appreciate that uh, President Biden has appointed smart people on climate, people who care about it, people who understand it's not going to be easy to solve. Uh, my Breakthrough Energy team, you know, is, is talking uh, to those people about, okay, how do we get more transmission or how do we accelerate getting the uh, – electricity, uh, so there's absolutely no emissions there. You know, how do we use tax credits, not just for solar and wind, but for some of these other newer things like uh, energy storage or carbon capture? And the actual stimulus bill last year had a lot of uh, these programs uh, got um, authorized, uh, including some of the work in nuclear and uh, some new incentives for offshore wind to get done. So they the policy area requires as much innovation and effort as the actual uh, creating of these new products. And, you know, for electric cars, we've seen how that comes together uh, to, to drive the demand and get us uh, to where we want to be. So uh, the next four years will be good. Uh, hopefully, at least elements of the plan, the core elements of the plan, uh, we have enough of voters, particularly young voters, uh, we'll want to see those continue even as we have uh, political changes uh, during the next 30 years. So we can't, you know, just make progress when one party's in power. Uh, we'll completely miss because the large capital spending or power generation, steel plants, cement plants, you know, they, those companies have to see that the requirement to go green is not something that comes and goes uh through political cycles. You know, this is going to be seen around the world on CNN, CNN International, and 
so people are going to be looking at it with different sets of eyes and different points of view. Some Americans who are skeptical, perhaps uh, on on the science uh, behind all, all this, will say, "Well, wh why does America have to do all this stuff when it's you know new plants being put up, coal plants in China and and you know and in India and in other parts of the world?" And there's a lot of folks in other parts of the world, particularly the developing world, who say, "Well." You know why are we the ones who are going to have to limit our, you know, potential for growth when America has been consuming all this stuff now for decades? You're absolutely right. the The global nature of this problem is one of the reasons why it's so difficult. The my response would be that the rich countries uh, and China need to do more than just zero out their own emissions. They also need to take all their innovation power and come up with approaches to being green where the extra cost, the green premium, is brought down very dramatically. And in my view, if you bring it down 95%, uh, then the remaining cost, which is a little over $250 billion a year, that's, we, we can find ways that countries collectively will finance that so that the poor countries aren't uh, having to pay any share of that as we're asking them to go green. Uh, the middle-income countries like China and India, they will have to agree to it. Uh, and if they see that as holding back the basic shelter or air conditioning or light at night that they haven't gotten for their citizens, uh, they'll tell us, no, the, the, the rich countries need to send us checks and yet, if that adds up to trillions over time, it's, it's not likely to happen. So the only way I can see to square this is bringing those costs down by drawing on uh, innovation power. And I see Europe raising R&D budgets. You know, I think under President Biden, we'll see uh, energy R&D budgets go up. It, that's actually one part of the climate effort that's somewhat bipartisan in nature is, is uh, you know, those high-paying jobs and uh, opportunities for companies. But if you told me we could innovate, uh, then I, I would be very pessimistic about uh, avoiding the, the climate disaster. We spend the hour with Bill Gates talking about everything from power and water crisis in Texas to what he thinks the U.S., China, and other countries can and must do to tackle climate change in the next 30 years. Let's dive now into the future. What gives Gates hope? A lot of the stuff you talk about for, you know, for the, what, what 2100 will look like, we don't make changes, sounds very legitimate and certain. You know, history has shown us that we often don't know what lies ahead or we think we do, but it's hard to predict. How confident are you that, you know, all our concerns, all the scientific consensus, your your concerns is legitimate? Well, the, the record, the science of why CO2 causes this temp, temperature increase is unquestioned. And the fact that as you get that temperature increase, uh, you get more evaporation, so you get more water in the atmosphere, and that also, uh, is a greenhouse gas. So you have this multiplier effect for CO2. The error bars, that is the uncertainty of, of how much temperature you get, there's, that's still there. Uh, but you know, in all of that range, the effects are, are super negative. 
uh, and you know could be higher up in that range. So scientists aren't saying we know the, the exact temperature uh, or the negative weather that results from that, but all even the best case now uh, is a pretty awful case that would justify uh, making the R&D investments to change these activities. And, and just finally, you know, this does seem the, the problem of, of, you know, the climate disaster, it does seem overwhelming. And I, for all of the scope of it, I know you are optimistic about the possibility of, of achieving this. What, what gives you the optimism and, and, you know, give us some of that optimism tonight. Yeah, the, you know, it, just telling people how bleak it's going to be if we don't do it, that's got to be part of the message because that, that is the truth. And, um, you know, there's not, sadly, there's not uncertainty about uh, uh, the, the general magnitude of that. I do think we need to talk more about these cool innovations. You know, some things like electric cars, they don't cause local pollution. They aren't as noisy. Uh you know, once you use one, you're like, wow, uh, this is a, a better product. And I hope that's true across the board, that we're not just innovating to match, uh, but we're innovating wherever possible to make something better. And, you know, the entrepreneurs and the journey they've been on, uh, the people who are documenting uh, what's uh, going on out there, there's a lot of heroes in this race. And, uh, you know, people need to see that absolutely we are making progress, that you know, the green premiums are coming down, uh, that we're activating a lot of incredible thinkers uh, around these problems. Uh, and so, you know, people should be hopeful. You know, the world by and large uh, is getting better and we need to make sure climate is not the thing that, that blocks that. Bill Gates, thank you so much. Thanks. That's the last little bit. I'm looking for my clients and his accountants. I'm so sorry. I believe.